In episode 10, we considered all the opportunities for scholarships available, including those for households earning over 200,000. Today, we turn our attention to the subset of students who are skilled in theater and musical theater. There are numerous opportunities for these students in colleges across America. It's only a matter of finding the right fit. I'm excited to introduce you today to the man that can help these students in finding that fit at the perfect school, Drew Beaudreau, owner of College Audition Pros. As an actor, Drew's credits include regional theater across the country, off-Broadway, national tours, cruise ships, and more. He's a member of the Professional Union for Actors, Actors' Equity Association. As a teacher, Drew loves helping students and their families boost their confidence in college auditions, giving them the keys to elevate their performance and maximize their admissions. Drew, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Alex. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So can you share just a little bit about your background? Tell us what got you into consulting. So I am an actor and I was doing a production of The Sound of Music somewhere in rural California. And we would all go out to Applebee's after the show because that was the only place that was open after 10 in this town. And the lead was like, we were all being super conservative with our money because like, you know, we're only getting like, you know, 250 a week or something like that. And she's like, I'll have this appetizer, this drink. And I was like, hang on a second. I know what you make because we make almost the same. How are you doing this? And she said, oh, well, on the side, I sometimes help students with their college auditions. And it sort of like planted a seed in my head that would just be dormant for a couple of years. And then I started teaching at OSHA, which is the Orange County School of the Arts in Southern California, that's where people who went on to be like huge successes like Matthew Morrison and Chris Rodriguez and Lindy Mendez, that they all came from. And while I was teaching there, I was seeing all these seniors getting ready for their college auditions. And I remembered what my friend had said to me, and I tied it to my terrible experience with college auditions. And I said, oh, I'll bet it would probably be as beneficial for the parents as it would for the students to help with this college audition business. And I started with one kid the first year, and then two the second year, and so on and so on. And now we're up to about 25, 30 wow. a year. You mentioned you had a terrible experience yourself with college auditioning. Would you mind sharing that? What was bad about it? Absolutely. I would love to share this with everyone. So I had a mentor who was good at a lot of things, but not good at college prep stuff. So as senior year was approaching high school, I was like, yeah, you know, I want to go to the schools in the East Coast. And he was like, well, yeah, I think you should. And my parents were like, we have X many dollars available for college. And my mentor, rather than say, hey, let's find schools that are within that budget, was like, no, you really should only be applying to the expensive schools, NYU, Emerson, Carnegie Mellon, et cetera, et cetera. So why don't you do two years of community college and then transfer to these programs. And there are two problems with that. One, I didn't want to go to community college, but two, it's much harder to transfer into a BFA program because of the rigor of the programs that you can't just like ease on into junior year of a BFA program. Now he didn't know that. And so what I did was I went to community college and I was like, I'll just knock out my GEs in two years. The problem is when you take a creative person and you take away all their creative outlets 
and you just give them math and science, they become uh, very desiccated. Yes. And <laughs> yes, and I didn't anticipate that. But I came into community college with almost a 4.0 GPA. And by the time I finished, I was under two. I had like a one point something. Uh, well, you're 18. I mean, you know, it's, it's impossible to reflect on the world at that point. Yeah. And so then I was like, all right, community college is over. But now I don't have the grades to go to anywhere that I want to go to. And so I just kind of like applied everywhere. And I got into one school who took me and I was like, Hmm. Their qualifications are they took me. I'll take that. Okay. I'll go there. And so I want to make this process easier for people who want to go to college right out of high school or who do want to do community college first and giving them the real guideposts to get where they want to go in a deliberate kind of way versus figuring everything out on the fly. Totally. So could you talk about what makes your consulting practice so unique? How would you kind of like describe its core mission? Yeah. Thank you. That's a great question. Core mission. If I had an elevator pitch and we're only going up from floor one to floor two together, I always say it's about maximizing admissions and not losing your marbles, which a lot of college counselors have that goal in mind. What makes this so different is that there's so much more to be done for a student going into the arts. You know, you have your academic profile that you have to submit and all the timelines that you have to fit as well. If you're a typical high school student, you know, you're going into business or journalism or English. But with musical theater, my expertise comes in because you have to jump over a lot more hurdles. So there's the first hurdle of academics. Okay, fine. Second hurdle is the audition itself. Third hurdle is can we use you at our college? And that's the one that can sometimes sting the most because it makes the least sense for a student. A student can do everything right, make no mistakes, and still not get in because there's just not enough room. So my job comes in segmented portions here. First portion is to help them pick schools, right? So like, again, if you're a typical high school student and your priorities are, I want to not go over $40,000 a year. And I want to be in a warm climate. Well, there are a ton of colleges that have your major that fit those things. But for musical theater, there's only about 300 programs in the country with that degree type. So already we're starting at a very small number. And then of those, how many are affordable? And then of those, how many have exactly what you're looking for in terms of your curriculum? And then of those, how many match your religious expectations and your campus dorms and your study abroad, really getting down to the nitty gritty. And the idea is rather than going off of like whatever list got paid by colleges to be the top 20 theater schools in the country, let me help you find schools that match what you're looking for and aren't going to put you in debt. And then like you have to bring your auditions to the school. And one way of doing that is going website to website and looking up what every school wants and if you're not a theater parent, a lot of that sort of reads like Sanskrit. If you're like a 32-bar up-tempo from the golden age, I just said three things that make no sense <laughs> to most parents. Most people, I think. Yes. So my job is to make that very followable from a timeline point of view and take all that pressure to organize off of them. And I'll do all that stuff. 
and picking materials, picking monologues, songs. Sometimes students don't know that a monologue they really love is going to actually put them in the hole. Or a song they really love might just not be the song to sing this year. Or sometimes they get self-conscious about like, oh, I've heard the song is overdone. And it's my job to say like, no, that song is great. Who told you it's overdone? It's perfect. Again, just taking all that stress off of the second guessing and the worrying. I film the audition pre-screen, which is your first introduction to program. Again, like if Alex applies to college, he just sends in his essay and grades and test scores. Theater students have to send in a pre-audition video and then get called back if that video is good enough to audition in person. Is that you doing a monologue on film? Is that what it is? Monologue, song, and dance. So I'll do all that. And then a lot of it, I sort of settled back into the more traditional role of independent college counselor, which is a lot of like psychotherapy and like being a shoulder to cry on. And then the last thing that I do that is, I think, more specialized is there are these things called unifieds, which are where all the theater schools come to a city in the same weekend, New York, Chicago, or Los Angeles. So a student can knock out all their auditions in one weekend versus bounce around the country. And I travel with them. And that way I'm sort of like the boxing trainer in their corner. So I help like keep their confidence and their focus up between auditions there. And there's also this thing that we do called walk-ins, which is the just the most fabulous thing where you can just audition for schools that you haven't even applied to at Unifieds and just walk in and say, hey, I'm Drew. You don't know me. I don't know you. Here's my song and dance. And sometimes those schools that you've never even heard of is the school you end up going to because you meet them at the last minute and they are absolutely your jam. Oh, that's wild. I didn't know there was like, it's kind of like a college fair version of the musical theater thing, right? Except uh, it sounds a little more involved. It is. The nerves are so high. You can cut the tension with a knife because there's, there's 417 year olds who are all shaking. And then their parents who are shaking oh as well. Oh, <laughs> stress fest. Are there like scholarships available for MFA programs like there are with athletics? There are. However, they are very small because the theater programs just don't have the money that athletics has. Whereas athletics can bring in money from the boosters and from television rights and that kind of stuff. Theater just doesn't really bring in any money. So there are programs that can give you some money. But the big money makers are always going to be from academics. And does that make it more competitive or less competitive to get into these MFA programs, comparatively speaking? You know, it depends on the program. So like a good example, Carnegie Mellon is one of like the most competitive programs for theater around the world. And it gives no merit aid. And still it's packed. Still, you have less than a 1% chance is that of getting right? in. Less than 1%? Of, Oh my God. Yeah, it is harder to get into Carnegie Mellon for musical theater than it is to get into Harvard as a general. Wow. I know. With academics. Wow. That's nuts. Yeah. And then there are some schools that have a really good program and they are a low price point, and that makes them very competitive as well. So, like a program like Missouri State, one of my absolute favorite programs in the country incredible, incredible musical theater program. And sticker price is only about $25,000 a year at most. Like that's the Bezos price. Very, very affordable. So sometimes the schools that do give aid are very competitive because they give aid. 
And sometimes the schools that don't give aid are still competitive because they have that brand name on them. Mm, right. Like Carnegie Mellon. Are there kind of stories of triumph or failure that you would like to share? Maybe like a case study, I guess, kind of thing. Absolutely. This is one of my favorite things. So I say that starting with school selection is like the bedrock of this whole thing. Every step after that cannot be unlinked from that first step. You know, this sets the tone for everything that comes after it. And I had this great case study. Maybe four years ago, I had in a maybe a dozen students, one of them already had Broadway credits. She was 17 and she already been on Broadway as a lead. Jesus, what? For what? What play would you be a lead for? She played Annie. Annie. Yeah, I guess that would do it. (laughs) Yeah. So she was on Broadway. I guess she was probably 11 or 12. But after that, they moved back to California and she was leads in like the big regional theaters in LA and San Diego as well. She was a professional actress. Same year, I had a student and she had done show choir, never done a musical, never even done a play, never taken an acting class. And this fits into school selection because I'm always a big proponent of, okay, your school selection has got to be this many schools, this big, you know, minimum 12 schools, cap out around 20 schools. And my Broadway kid was like, I'm only interested in like Syracuse, Ithaca, NYU. So those are the schools that I'm going to apply to. And my show choir kid, she was like, yes, sir. Whatever you say, sir, I, I will do that. And when it came time to do the thing, Broadway kid got to unify and she was like, I don't want to do walk-ins. I don't want to go to these other schools. I'm going to go just to these three schools. And I have a letter of rec from James Lapine. Now, if you don't know who that is, James Lapine wrote the book to Into the Woods with Stephen Sondheim. He directed The Falsettos. He wrote the book to Sunday in the Park with George. Like He is one of the living legends of Broadway. And Show Choir Kid had a letter of rec from their teacher. So like, huge difference. And Broadway Kid didn't get into any Are of Are you kidding schools. me? You can't get in there. <laughs> Those after being in it. Oh my God. Why? Because her school list was just too short. And show choir kid got to Unifieds and she was like, yeah, I'm going to do all the walk-ins that you say to do. Absolutely. And she was like, I just want to get into a school. That's my goal. And she got into the four or five schools. That's remarkable though. How do you play Annie on Broadway and you can't get into any of those three schools? So that's that heartbreaking third hurdle I was talking about earlier. Like if Alex auditions for me and I say, man, I sure could use a guy who's 5'3 and who's blonde and Alex comes in and blows and it's me like away a tenor, with how good right? he is. Like, like his right. particular vote, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Yeah, right, right. That makes sense. Wow. That's ruthless. So what did she do? What did this girl do when she didn't get into those three schools? I think she realized that once she was done with the process, she was like, I don't think I really wanted to be in school anyway. So she just stayed in New York and she was like, I'm just going to 
audition here. And since then, she's oh, been really? doing great. Okay. All right. So just kind of skip the college experience altogether. There were a couple of things that stood out to me in the first segment of my conversation with Drew. First of all, in comparing those two case studies that he did with one student who starred in Annie, you know, on Broadway, and then another sort of very average kid who ended up navigating that process and finding a good school that fit them. It tells me that there isn't necessarily the equality and the fairness and the predictability that one would expect from college admissions. There's this assumption out there that if you work hard, you get the right grades, you get the right test scores, you do your due diligence, that you're gonna get into that dream college, or at least a dream college, but that's not necessarily the case. I think there is a large degree of luck, of chance, that really enters into the equation and you really need to include it in your calculus when you're determining how to approach this process. That really stuck out to me in comparing those two case studies. The second point that stood out to me was which schools experience sort of the most competition. Some, he said, experience that competition because they give good aid packages and there are different reasons for them being attractive. In musical theater, too, that could be a completely different picture if you're talking about for lacrosse or pre-med. You know, the other area that you could have sort of competition in is for brand name, which is sort of an entirely different situation. And yet in both cases, you have that higher degree of difficulty, that sort of lower number in terms of the acceptances. So the complication of that does signal to me, again, the importance of college consulting. You know, when I first started doing this podcast, to be fully honest, I'm not sure I saw the great importance of college consulting. And yet now that I've talked to about 10 or 12 of these folks, I see more and more why it's important and why it makes a big difference in that experience for the kid and where they sort of ultimately end up. So that was just another reminder of the complications that they can help you navigate. I'm curious to get your thoughts on kind of the landscape of musical theater application today, particularly, you know, how the pandemic has shifted that process. What does that look like? Well, for one thing, it looks more equitable, which is great. The fact that we've done a lot of virtual auditioning has made it more fair for people who don't have the money to come to Unifieds or fly to campus or that kind of stuff. And I hope that sticks around. I hope the option of having a virtual audition date stays after everything opens back up. It makes it more fair for folks who just don't have the benefit of, oh, sure, I can get in a plane and book a hotel in New York City for four days. Like That's not chump change. And the fact that it has also kind of bled into the professional world has been a godsend too, because you know now we're still not back in studio auditioning for musical theater, for Broadway and off-Broadway. Everything is still self-taped which again, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. It helps people who have limited resources to get uptown, downtown, or maybe who don't have a car, who can't get around LA. So I think the pandemic silver lining is that it's made it a little more fair for folks. What do you think is kind of the best strategy for parents of your parents of a student who's into musical theater or is, is thinking about pursuing that? What sort of advice do you give parents? 
first bit of advice is don't try and change their minds. Don't try and talk them out of it. And then don't do the backdoor talk them out of it. Think about a plan B, honey, because plan B sends them such a clear message that you don't have faith in them. And we don't need that. The concern is respectable, which is I want you to be okay after you come out of college and you're in the real world. Of course, I totally respect that. But there are better ways to go about it, starting with first, supporting them in what they're going to go do and give them your full backing and making sure they have additional money-making skills while they're a professional artist as either a HTML coder or you know they can teach or they can learn editing. There's so many additional skills they can have that will make them money. But don't say, if this doesn't work out, because then you are telling them you're probably not good enough to make a living at this. And definitely don't try and talk them out of it because then that's going to harbor resentment that they're going to hang on to for the rest of their lives against you as a parent. If they choose to change majors, let them choose that. If they get, you know, even two years in the program realize, nope, don't want to do this for a living. Okay, great. If they graduate and they start gigging professionally and realize I want to change professions, let them do that. And they'll have memories of my mom and dad supported me and let me make my own mistakes. And that's a much better relationship to have. So true. At least I do sort of undervalue my role in my kids' lives. I, I have three. I mean, my oldest daughter's only nine, but about to be 10. She's going on 16 though. But yeah, I think we can underrate our voices, I think sometimes in the influence and impact they can have. And I think we overrate our subtlety. <laughs> I think at times, like we think we're being a lot more subtle and like, you know, either we put it back door or behind the scenes, whatever it is, that's much more concealed than it actually is. When really that kid is so dialed into the parent and the parent's expectations and the parent's hopes for their kid, you know, that any sort of subtle suggestion, no pressure, really can impact and influence them. What are some unforeseen challenges maybe that parents or students run into in this application process? There's two that I can think of off the bat. One is not having all of your organization for submissions together, and then you forget to include something. It's the big reason why a college audition coach is so valuable is not necessarily like making your student more talented. That's, that's not really our job, but walking you through everything so you don't miss a step. There's so many more steps to take. So that's an unforeseen challenge is, oh, I thought I submitted everything for this school. I didn't. And now my application isn't valid. Disaster strikes the unprepared, as they say. That's right. The other thing is not auditioning for enough schools. You think that when you load up at camp before you go off on the Oregon Trail and you say, yeah, I think I think two axles is probably fine. I want to save the rest of the money. No, four axles, four axles and a lot of beef. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That was like the first game in, what is that, 1991 or something, man. Yeah, yeah. Apple II, yeah. Yeah, Oregon right. Trail. Oh, yeah. That's right. Because you don't know if you're going to hit any wild game yeah, in the first yeah, part yeah. of the Who's trail. going to get dysentery? You have no idea. Yeah. That's right. Screw up, That's right. A river. That's why you always play as a banker so you can buy the most medical supplies and food. 
So when students apply for 13 schools, they think, oh, that's that's more than enough. And then they don't consider things like, oh, I'm not going to get academically admitted to all these schools. And then I'm not going to get called back to all these schools. And so now like, I'm only hanging on to like four or five schools and that's way too few. So like, that's why I say, you know, 12 minimum, 20 is still okay. So, and doing walk-ins, like just you, you can instantly add to your schools over the weekend, add five, six, seven schools with no prep, just walk in, sing and dance. And now you've applied to 27 schools and you only had to do the work of applying to 20. And that way you really have some leeway. Right now, all the seniors, this is being recorded in the first week of March. Right now we have all these seniors who are ah, super freaking out because like, you know, maybe they're waiting on 15 schools to get back to them. And the first seven or eight have been no's and the no's come first. And, you know, you don't want to go through that mental anguish, you know, apply to more schools than maybe you think you need just to escape that kind of mental and emotional torture that you're going to face later on. When is it best to start this process? I mean, I imagine it's similar to other college processes, but. Yeah, I mean, we'd like to start February, March of junior year. So not super early. I know that some academic counselors start maybe in sophomore year with like executive functioning and aptitude stuff, test prep. Yeah. I start second semester of junior year with finding schools and audition requirements. And the reason that I do that is because like you blink and all of a sudden it's summertime and you don't know what schools to apply for. And then suddenly you're overwhelmed. So even though you're only in the room for four minutes, you know, it's four minutes of talking. The reason that you start so early is all the other reasons, all of the administrative stuff that you don't want to have to, you know, juggle 20 balls at one time. How about two? Right. How about just two or three balls in the air at one time? Right. There were two points that stood out to me from the second segment of my conversation with Drew. The first of those was sort of the impact of COVID. And he mentioned that COVID has had the impact of making online applications a bit more fair because you can now apply to schools that you maybe couldn't have before due to a number of factors, one of them being tests blind or test optional, and just the ease of applying online, how that's sort of gone up with COVID. That is a widely documented phenomenon. The problem is, of course, that it's lowered acceptance rates because there's been more applications overall. Now, does that mean those schools have become more selective? Technically, yes, but who are those, if we're talking about a Yale or a Harvard or an Ivy League school and they're taking 2%, who are those 2%? That has just become a much more difficult and I would say dumb luck type of process. I'm not sure they're more informed in making that 2% decision versus 6% or whatever it was before. I think that a chance is more of a factor now than ever. So it's a little nerve wracking on the one hand. On the other, if you can strategically apply to the schools that make sense for you and the ones that you have a great shot at, then I think that gives you more, ironically or paradoxically, control over your college situation overall, if that makes sense, because you can sort of manipulate that situation using a calculus that includes 
the improbability that's going to come into the equation in a way that's going to better your long-term situation. A second point was the underappreciated impact expectations can have on a child and how really visible those things are to a child. Guy pointed out that we think we're being a lot more subtle than we are. And if you have that sort of active influence or that active voice in that kid's life, I think there's a real chance of some bitterness developing either in the short term or the long term. It's really important and very difficult to do, but to take a sort of back seat in your child's life and let it be their own, let their failures be their own, let their path be their own. As Khalil Gibran says, one of my favorite poems of all time, it's called On Children. He says, your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. So it's a very elegant way of stating that sort of paradoxical situation where children are yours, but they're not yours. You know, and I think in that college application process, that is where they're more than ever becoming not yours and allowing them to have that experience not to not be you, I think really impacts their future happiness and their relationship with you when you're looking 10 years down the road, you know, where they sort of end up as a result of their college process. So what do you kind of see in the near future for higher education, for musical theater? So say you have a parent with a young high school or middle school kid, what's it going to be like down the road? I don't see costs coming down anytime soon. So costs will still be going up. Thank you, inflation. Due to inflation, yeah. But I do see more equity coming down the line in terms of like, maybe we hit a world where we never have to go to campus of any school if we don't want to, that we can just do a unified and virtual auditioning. Virtual reality auditioning. How awesome would oh, that be? Oh, yeah. Huh? We're the big Oculus yeah, thing? Yeah, Oh, that'd be so yeah, cool. Yeah, would, wouldn't it? <laughs> can you imagine going to a play or some sort of musical with VR? Wouldn't that be awesome? I don't think that's far away, man. I think that'd be pretty cool. There was a production of Lord of the Rings in Toronto maybe 10, 15 years ago. And I think it'd be so cool to revive it with everyone in the Oculus. Oh, that'd be so cool. Giant Balrog. Wind, oh, uh, yeah. oh my god uh, yeah why haven't they done more with yeah. that that's interesting <laughs> that'd be so cool i also think that down the line as the older generation of heads of programs retire we're gonna see also a more acceptance of normal sized human bodies being the norm for college musical theater like right now it's still a little bit fat phobic a little bit like there's a broadway body and it has nothing to do with can you keep up with the dancing because sometimes you know if you're out of shape well of course like you can't do that musical number but i have a lot of friends who are fat who are dancers and they have no problem keeping up with the number i hope that this trend continues of like bell can be any size millie can be any size I think it's such a non-issue that I'm I'm hoping the new chairs of programs who are now in their 30s and 40s are going to be a little more hip to that. Interesting. So how can parents sort of best prepare 
for these shifts. Again, so like five to 10 years from now, you know, say I have a kid who's, you know, got some that I noticed some talent in, you know, in terms of, of singing, acting, that sort of thing. What should I do? Well, depending on where you live, you know, keep them going in all the community theater and children's theater stuff that you can do, you know, not so much for their resume, but just for their experience. If you're anywhere near a place that does television and film, Los Angeles, Toronto, Vancouver, Chicago, Austin, Atlanta, New York, submit for TV because everything's being filmed at home now. So so you don't have to like drive into town anymore. And if you can get them some TV audition experience, awesome. They'll know the professional side a little bit more. What do you mean by submit for TV? What is that? What does that mean? So when you go onto a site like Actors Access, it's just a giant table of jobs that are available for actors. And there's probably 20 or 30 new jobs posted every day, every morning. And a lot of them are for kids. And so you click on it and it says, maybe it says Tostitos commercial. And you click on that and it'll have a breakdown. Eight-year-old boy who loves football. Oh, okay. Well, Jeff doesn't know anything about football, but he could look like it. And then you record him saying- Get that kid a jersey. Right, exactly. (laughs) Then you record him saying, wow, mom, nothing better than your salsa and football. Great. And then you- Send that in, and then if they want you, you can go into town and film your commercial and make some sweet money off of that. But just getting that experience under your belt is great. And you don't start with this stuff, this college stuff. You don't really have to start until sophomore year, like getting an idea of what you'll have to do junior year. But junior year, definitely start early. Start like January, February, March of junior year. And may have alluded to this already, but I mean, if you could give parents of younger students one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? Oh, gosh. The best thing that I can think of is is full tilt support. Absolute full tilt support. And what does that look like? I mean, just non-judgment or non-directional? Yeah, yeah. non-judgmental, including critiques of their performance. You know, I'm speaking anecdotally here, but my dad was like not shy about telling me like, I thought that was great, or I thought that sucked. <laughs> so, like, that does something to a kid's confidence, you know. So, just support them without being a stage mom or a stage dad. Remember, it's their life, not yours. And you know, if they choose to do something else, they had an awesome childhood with you supporting them, and that's what they'll hang on to. They don't have to go into professional entertainment, but they do have to know that you supported them in whatever they did want to do. Yeah, totally. Here are some final thoughts that I had when reflecting on my conversation with Drew overall. First, I think he pointed out several very common mistakes that come along with college applications. The first he suggested was that it was done last minute. And maybe that seems silly because it's such an important sort of time in their lives and there is such sort of circumstance and fuss put into the whole process by you by college counselors, by school systems, by teachers, by coaches, that it would seem bizarre that they would leave these things for the last minute, but never underestimate the immaturity of the immature. I very specifically recall my time at a boarding school applying to colleges and that being an exercise in meeting the deadline and scrambling to 
put these things together. And as everyone who has a fully formed prefrontal cortex knows, doing things at the last minute does not produce quality results. It just doesn't, right? And disaster strikes the unprepared. So I think you should sort of bake that into the recipe a little bit. And you know your child too. I mean, there are some that are incredibly responsible and we'll have this done in August, but there are others. And I would say a good portion of them who will underestimate the importance of getting this done ahead of time. So certainly you want to be patient and understanding with that. There's no sense in crucifying them over that, but I think you should weigh that, I guess, into the formula. Again, another reason why college consultants are kind of important because they can do a lot of that pressing without being the parent. That parental, you know, relationship being so fraught with all of the brush your teeth like for 20 years. So I think that's really vitally important in getting a good application and ultimately. The second point was that framing of how to position, I guess, yourself as an influence versus a sort of bystander in this whole process, which I think is an incredibly complex one. I don't think there's a simple answer, but some of the points that he made were pretty critical including being supportive of whatever it is that they're pressing for. Whether that's music theater, they wanna join the NBA, they wanna be a brain surgeon, whatever it is. Maybe that doesn't quite line up with your vision for them for whatever reason. Perhaps you think they're not capable of that or you see the sort of shortcomings of that because you've seen them for 18 years and you understand maybe a little bit better even than they do about who they are and what they're capable of and what the world is all about. Fine, but you really can't allow that knowledge, that circumspection really to impact any of that relationship or any of that conflict. As he says, that has a long-term impact in your relationship with them. Do want them to say in 10 years that my parents were really supportive of me, especially if that thing that they pursue or are denied from pursuing doesn't work out because there's certainly gonna be some lingering feelings about that. It's a very critical juncture in their lives. I remember very specifically my time at around 18, setting of a lot of the avenues that end up being highways of your life. So I think being as supportive as possible is very important. Although that might require you to sort of silence some of those parental voices that feel pretty instinctive as far as keeping them safe and making the right decisions, things that you've almost been programmed to do over many, many years.